0: We're in Leviticus 23, if you want to open your Bibles there tonight. Leviticus 23. We've been taking a look at the Feasts of Israel. Quick look, just to become more familiar with them. uh, They form a sort of prophetic calendar that tell us about God's great work of redemption. And the last of the spring feasts is where we're at tonight, uh, the Feast of Pentecost. So let me read in Leviticus 23 the section that talks about this. It says there, beginning in verse 15, You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord." And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year, without blemish, one young bull, two rams. They shall be as burnt offering to the Lord, with their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering, and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord. With the two lambs, they shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Now this English word that we use, Pentecost, it's a transliteration of the Greek Pentecostus, which means 50. 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, the, peace, uh, the Feast of Pentecost was observed. The space between the two feasts, including seven Sabbaths, was called the Feast of Weeks. It began with the offering of the first fruits of the barley harvest. It ended with the ingathering of the wheat harvest. The first day was the Feast of the First Fruits, the last day was the Feast of Pentecost. Only the first and last day were actually celebrated, not the 49 days in between. At the Feast of First Fruits, stalks of grain were offered and waved, but at Pentecost, the grain was to be ground and made into flour, from which two loaves were to be baked with leaven, and the loaves of bread were to be waved before the Lord. Then a burnt offering of seven lambs without blemish of the first year, one young bull, two rams was to be offered with the wave loaves, as also was meat and drink offerings for a sweet savor unto the Lord. These were to be followed by a sin offering of a kid of the goats and two lambs of the first year for a peace offering. I'll admit to you, I I, I can't, I don't, I have a hard time following exactly how this stuff would have played out. It would be interesting to uh, to to see the priests in action and how they actually moved through these various offerings and stuff. And so we're just getting kind of the the bare bones of it. Now, there were requirements for individual worship. This was uh, corporate worship at the temple, but individually, Deuteronomy 16, verses 9 through 12 says, You shall count seven weeks for yourself. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are among you at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. Now, in the same way Jesus fulfilled the first three feasts in his death, burial, and resurrection, Passover, unleavened bread and first fruits, Feast of Weeks is fulfilled in the empowering of the church to bring the harvest of the gospel. Jesus was our Passover lamb for the redemption of humanity. His blood allowed death to pass over our sins since he took sin upon himself. Jesus was in the grave but he did not decay, fulfilling the picture of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then Jesus rose on the Feast of first fruits, himself being the firstfruits of the resurrection. Then he instructed his followers to remain in Jerusalem until they received the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is what occurred on the 50th day on Pentecost. And with that empowering, the harvest is proceeding in the age in which we live. The two loaves made from the same sheaves of wheat appear to symbolize believing Jews and believing Gentiles who've been incorporated now into the same spiritual body, the church. The fact that both loaves have leaven symbolizes the presence of sin from which believers will be progressively sanctified by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so those loaves we can see as representing Jews and Gentiles because we see what the Lord is actually doing uh, during this age. He's calling out a people for himself. He's harvesting. Uh, Oftentimes in the scripture the believers are compared to wheat as opposed to non-believers who are tares. And so there's a, a harvest going on, and uh, it involves Jews and Gentiles. Pentecost is fulfilled by Jesus in the sense that the church age is a harvest of wheat, the ingathering of believers, until the Lord returns for us. Now I came across some things about the day of Pentecost that I trust you will find as interesting as I did. Some um, misconceptions and, and some things that we read slightly wrong, I think. Uh, and one of them is its location. Where were the disciples when the Holy Spirit came upon them? Well, if you say in the upper room, you might be right, but consider the following. Immediately after his ascension into heaven, we read in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, then the disciples returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. When they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. I wonder if Simon the zealot, I mean, that just never gets old, right? He's just Simon the zealot. God had changed him and, and brought him out of that past, but he's always known as Simon the zealot. Wish we knew more about the guy. But the idea is, it says here, they uh, were in the upper room, it says that's where they were staying. And this is likely the same upper room they had secured for their last Passover feast with Jesus. And so that's the upper room. Then the next verse says, verse 14 of Acts chapter 1, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now over in the Gospel of Luke, which was written by Luke, as was the book of Acts, he says, and they worshiped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Luke omits the detail about where they were staying while they were still pilgrims in Jerusalem, but he lets us know they were daily in the temple. So if you read all that at once, the impression you get is that they were staying in the upper room, and they would come to the temple every day and hang out there and worship the Lord. Unless they were staying in some upper room in the temple, the upper room was where they were living, but it was separate and away from the temple. Now, according to Acts chapter 5, verse 12, they met in a part of the temple called Solomon's porch. Josephus, we like to quote him, he's a Jewish historian. Uh, we know that not everything he says is 100% accurate, but he's got a good insight into things. And he says, Solomon's porch is like this. He says, there was a porch without the temple overlooking a deep valley supported by walls of 400 cubits made of four square stone, very white. The length of each stone was 20 cubits, the breadth six, and the work of King Solomon who first founded the whole temple. I I was looking, maybe you can find it, Google it. I, I couldn't, I was looking for a square footage on Solomon's porch, just that portion of the temple and I wasn't able to secure that but it apparently was a very large area there in the temple. Uh, Think of the temple in terms of like our own campus where we would have a, you you could say we were meeting in the courtyard or out at the game square, different things like that. So uh, the, the temple proper is just the Holy Place and the Holy of Holies. And then all the other structures around it, there was the Court of the Women and the Court of the Gentiles and Solomon's Porch and all these different places in the compound. And so they would meet uh, every day there in Solomon's porch. And so it's likely that the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the believers on the day of Pentecost actually happened in Solomon's porch, not in the upper room where they were staying, but in the temple where they hung out every day praising God. And that would explain how the Jewish pilgrims gathered in the temple immediately heard the disciples praising God in their native tongues, thinking that they were intoxicated. They they weren't hearing them a distance away from the upper room. It would also explain how, when I was talking to Gino about this, he says, well, that would also explain how thousands of people became Christians on that first day when uh, uh, the church was born and Peter preached because they were in the temple with all of the Pentecost pilgrims. And so um, uh, maybe you guys already knew that, but I think it's, com- it's commonly taught that the disciples were in the upper room, Holy Spirit fell upon them, and then somehow uh, other people heard that and all, but they were most likely in Solomon's porch or on, out in Solomon's porch uh, when all that happened. Now, while we're on that same subject, we normally say there were 120 who gathered in the upper room. We get that exact number from the description of Peter standing up in the upper room calling for a vote about replacing Judas with Matthias. We are nowhere told that the 120 in that meeting were the ones who were later baptized with the Holy Spirit. Proximity is there. If you're reading through Acts, you have the story of the choosing of Matthias and we're told there were 120 disciples. Judas hung himself and Peter, uh, by the inspiration of the Spirit, came across scripture that said that somebody should take Judas's place and they ended up casting lots and Matthias was chosen. Then the story moves on uh, to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it's a separate occasion and so we're not really told that that same 120 people were the only ones who received the Spirit. It may have been a much smaller group on that day or it may have been a much larger group. We know for example that after his ascension Jesus appeared to 500 believers at one time. The Apostle Paul told us that in 1 Corinthians 15 where he said after that Jesus was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain to the present but some have fallen asleep meaning some have died already. And so Sometimes people say there were only 120 believers left after Jesus rose from the dead, Uh, but obviously there were more than that because he appeared to 500 at one time. And so we're not sure how many believers were there in Solomon's porch on the day of Pentecost. It's wrong to assume there were only 120, and since we're not given a definite number, we just can't say for sure. I want to clear up one more misconception about what happened on the day of Pentecost. Uh, And this is one that people get very emotional about. I mean, up until now, these numbers and where it happened and all, you know, are are interesting. But but here's one that'll uh, get people going. Um, Here's the description of the moment of impact, as it were. This is from Acts chapter 2. If you want to follow along, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. By the way, the word for house doesn't necessarily mean a house. It's a designation of a place, and so it doesn't mean they were staying in a house. Uh, Verse 4 And they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And so we're told in that section very clearly everyone heard them speak in their own language, And then a partial list of those languages is given. So we see there were pilgrims from all over the known world. This was one of the pilgrimage feasts where Jewish males were required to attend. And so they were from all over, all of them speaking in their own native tongues. And now these disciples, all Galileans, uh, for the most part unschooled individuals, uh, they are now being heard in speaking these languages. Now I want you to listen to the Apostle Paul as he describes the supernatural gift of speaking in tongues. This is from 1 Corinthians 14 where we get a lot of teaching on this. 1 Corinthians fourteen two. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men. He speaks to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit, he speaks mysteries. And then a little later he adds... This is in 1 Corinthians 14:13 and 14. He says, "Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret, for I pray, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful." If you go back and read 1 Corinthians 14, you'll see that throughout the point Paul makes is that the gift of tongues is unintelligible without a supernatural interpretation. The supernatural gift of speaking in tongues is not a known foreign language. It is a mystery, he said, which requires another supernatural gift, interpretation, in order to be understood. Interpretation is purposely not the word for translation. When you interpret speaking in tongues, it is not a word for word language translation. You are simply told or shown by the Holy Spirit what was said. I always liken it to um, maybe a a piece of art where somebody has used that medium, and then you can go and analyze. You you get you can give an interpretation of what the artist intended by what you see in the painting. And so when there's Paul as he's describing the supernatural gift of speaking in tongues. He says it's a mystery language that's not to men, that no one understands. And it's so unintelligible that you shouldn't even do it unless there's going to be an interpretation so that everybody can be blessed by it. And if there's an interpretation, it has to be given supernaturally because no one naturally understands what's being said because it isn't a language. And so that's all really clear. And so on the day of Pentecost... The disciples did not receive the gift of tongues. They experienced a miracle of speaking known foreign languages. All of a sudden, in their praising God, they were praising God in Parthian and Phrygian and Cretan. Uh, and, and those from those areas could understand it because it was in their language. So one of the conclusions of this is that speaking in tongues cannot be the evidence that you have received the Holy Spirit. Because speaking in tongues is not what the disciples did on the day of Pentecost. It is indeed a gift for today, but it's not a gift that's given to every believer. Now, maybe you don't struggle with this or this isn't a problem for you. This is a huge thing among Pentecostal Christians and churches. And uh, there's all kinds of people in our church who have a testimony that uh, they were going to a Pentecostal church and they were practically forced to speak in tongues as the evidence that they had either been baptized with the Spirit or that they were saved. I mean, there's some groups that go so far as to say that if you don't speak in tongues, you're not even saved. And they all reference the day of Pentecost and what happened to the disciples. But if you just read, you don't even have to read this carefully. You just have to read it. And to find out that what happened on the day of Pentecost was known foreign languages. It was a miracle. We don't read anywhere else that Peter kept speaking Parthian. It was a a one-time miracle. And then the gift of speaking in tongues is completely different. We get it confused because we sometimes use the same word. We use tongues. Uh, instead of languages and uh, to get it across. So, very interesting. This sending of the Holy Spirit then on the day of Pentecost, it was a one-time event. It doesn't get repeated. Read the New Testament, you'll see that the Spirit-filled, Spirit-led life is normal for all believers. We receive the Spirit at conversion and we're to go on continually receiving Him. He's compared to a torrent of water continually coming into us to go through us to touch others. And so we are a conduit of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're told to ask and seek and knock for Him, believing by faith that we've received Him. And in that sense, we go on being filled. We say that it's a repeatable uh, uh, situation. We are replenished with the Spirit as we seek Him. A recurring problem in the church is is that having begun in the Spirit, we try to go forward in the flesh. And when we do that, we start to ignore and then lose the empowering of the Holy Spirit. It just happens. Uh, it, it, I don't know why, but I've seen it over the years. Uh, and it seems to happen a lot in churches that emphasize the teaching of the Word. You, you would think this wouldn't happen, but uh, we, we sort of move away from dependence on the Spirit and get into more of a dependence on the intellect. Paul warned the Galatian church, he says, Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Talking about works and different things that they were moving into. And so a lot of times, you know, you'll begin in the Spirit. We all, you, obviously, if you're a Christian, you begin in the Spirit because the Holy Spirit comes into you and, and uh, you are born again. But over time, an individual Christian, sometimes whole movements, sort of become stale, and they lose this sense of the Holy Spirit's leading. Instead of having prayer meetings, you have business meetings, and instead of depending upon the leading of the Lord, you start trusting on the arm of the flesh and on human wisdom and things like that. And then what will happen, either in an individual's life or in the life of a whole church, is that you will suddenly realize that you're no longer depending on the Holy Spirit. And you will long after him and seek after him. And a lot of times people will have an experience of almost receiving him for the first time. And that's where this idea comes that there is a second blessing. That first you get saved and then a little bit later on you receive the Holy Spirit's empowering. Now that's what happened to the disciples on the day of Pentecost. But once God gave the promise of the Spirit you see as you follow them through the book of Acts that that event never happened again. In fact, right after it happened, when Peter preached the gospel for the first time and thousands received the Lord, you're not told that tongues of fire came and and hung out with those people. Uh, There there was no repeat of the experience that had just happened. It was a one-time event uh, and, and now the Holy Spirit is received with power and we go on receiving Him and replenishing Him by faith, asking, seeking, and knocking, believing that our God is a good Father who will not withhold that gift from us. The New Testament norm is that we be filled to overflowing all the time with the Spirit. He isn't a second blessing until you've quenched Him. And then uh, what we do as people... We all do it. We're all guilty of it. Us too, in some ways. You, make, you have an experience, and then you promote that experience to others because it was so real to you. And then you, you learn how to go about these things. And and so, you know, there, there's a, a feeling among many Christians, Pentecostal Christians especially, who we love. I mean, we're not making fun of anybody or criticizing anybody, but there's kind of a feeling that the Holy Spirit works in a certain way all the time. And so, um, you know, they want to see people speak in tongues. They want to see people slain in the Spirit. They want to see people doing all kinds of things in response to the coming of the Holy Spirit upon them. And um, yet, it becomes super repetitive, where every week the same thing happens to the same people. And and um, that doesn't seem like that is really um, all that genuine, and so it's it's a very interesting phenomena. Um, we should go on asking and seeking and knocking, believing that our Father is good and will continually grant the Spirit. Uh, I know. Uh, so so our problem, our problem, is that we. Um, we'd be happy just studying the Word. Uh, every now and then somebody will come up to me and say, why do we care about the gift of tongues at all? Why do you even talk about that? Well, we talk about it, first of all, because it's in the, it's in the Word. Paul devotes an entire chapter of 1 Corinthians to it, more than a chapter, but there's one whole chapter on, uh, chapter 14, on the proper use of the gift of tongues and the interpretation of tongues and prophecy in the church. Now, there's some conservative scholars who say we don't need to worry about that anymore because none of that happens. Well, sure it does. Tongues is a gift for today, but it's not a gift that every believer has. Uh, it's given like the other gifts, according to the Holy Spirit. And, and it's, not, it's not what happened on the day of Pentecost. I mean, that's clear just from reading the words. And so, um, very interesting. Uh, to, to really parse this out and, and try and figure it out. We want to be those who hunger and thirst after God, who wait on the Lord and ask the Lord to continually fill us, but believing that He has. Now, maybe if you come, if you come from a conservative background, a lot of times when we talk about these things, people get, they just get nervous. Because you think any minute now I'm going to be you know, asking people to fall down or you know, start speaking in tongues or whatever and everybody's freaked out. If you come from a Pentecostal background, you might be offended thinking, what do I know about all of this and stuff? And, and so we, we do try and strike, uh, we like to call it balance, but it isn't really balance. It's just, it's just what, the, you know, what we think the Word is saying. But our problem, because we emphasize the teaching of the Word so much, is that we do get away from the ministry of the Spirit. And, and we don't wait on Him. And, we, and that's why on Wednesday nights especially, we like to give a lot of space and room to just waiting on the Lord and seeing how He's going to move. We're not looking for people to speak in tongues. We're not looking for them to not speak in tongues. Uh, we're just open to whatever the Lord does uh, and what He wants to do at a different time. We've had times on Wednesday night where we've had people who've had the gift of tongues and they've spoken in tongues. We've had the interpretation. Uh, We've had people receive visions or give prophecies, things like that. Uh, But, um, you know, we're all just in this thing together to try and figure out how to really praise the Lord in a way that will invite others into a love relationship with Him. And so, anyway, it's a little bit about Pentecost that I hope maybe uh, gives you some cause for... Uh, Further study. And uh, uh, we've got three feasts left. We've knocked off four. Now we come to the fall feasts. Which are very fascinating. Dealing with the end times. The return of the Lord. And uh, the millennial kingdom. And things like that. So that should be good.